This morning, we are going to be finishing up the book of Ruth. Uh, we uh, are using Ruth to finish up a series on Judges, because Ruth is set during the same period that the book of Judges was written in, and the period that that book describes. Shaka uh, Mitchell got us started last week, and we're going to finish up the book this week before spending the next couple of weeks after today uh, uh, doing a little bit of retrospective on this series and how it helps us to celebrate Advent, to see our need for a king. I'm sure I'm not the only one who this week uh, has been disturbed by those images of Gatlinburg burning. Uh, They're haunting images partly because the places that you could see burning are places that are familiar. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's spent some time over there. Uh, Many of you, I'm sure, have gone there on vacations or grew up going to the mountains. Uh, It's weird to watch places you've been to, buildings that are familiar, going up in flames like that. Going up, I grew up going to the mountains every year, uh, just actually just across the chimney top mountain from where Gatlinburg is. Our family had an extended family member with a little cabin in the North Carolina side of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and we'd go there every year. And some of my most distinctive memories of that place, some of my most distinctive memories, I won't call them pleasant memories, were uh, of driving on those roads. You guys know what I'm talking about? If you visited the mountains, you know those roads over there. They don't just go straight. There's just constant switchbacks. The only way to get up the mountain, right, is to, is to go up through back and forth, back and forth up the side or, or down the side of the mountain. We had one of these mid-1980s station wagons. We had it in the mid to late 1990s, but it was a mid and, mid-80s station wagon, one of those with the backwards-facing seats. You, know, you guys know what I'm talking about? Now you try going up those switchbacks facing backwards. It's miserable. There's not many straight roads over there. To go forward, you often have to go back. That's one of the best images I've come across so far from another pastor for what the book of Ruth is all about. For the point its story is supposed to make to followers of of Jesus. The Christian life is not an easy life. It's not an interstate drive through the wide plains of Texas or Kansas or wherever else there are plains. You know, you you get on one of those interstates and it's just straight, as far as the eye can see. And sometimes people think that that's what Christian living should be like if God was really for us. Straight, flat, easy roads. When in fact based on what the Bible tells us to expect and based on what every Christian who's ever lived has experienced in their life, our road to glory is a lot more like a road up the side of a mountain in the middle of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Sometimes you go backwards in order to go forwards. That's the only way up. Christian living is actually much more circuitous We do go back as often as we go forward, and sometimes we're left wondering what's coming around the next bend. But Ruth's story is here, friends. This is it. Ruth's story is here to remind us that though the road may be hard, and though it will be unpredictable, the story of every life, of every one of God's children, is a story of redemption. Every story 
leads to Jesus. Now, that's the only point we're going to make today. That's it. You just got it. I'm going to try to bring that point out of this story because this story is incredible. One of the most beautiful, captivating stories, I believe, in, in all of the Bible. I think I need to set it up for you first, though, because three-fourths of you were traveling last weekend, and you weren't here to hear the first two chapters of Ruth. <laughs> Let me set the story up, then I'm going to bring you into where we access it this morning together. So the context of the story of Ruth is, is the darkness of Judges. The last several months, we've been unpacking the worst, probably the worst period of Israel's history. Everything was going wrong. Israel's best and brightest are doing their own best to run the nation into the ground and out of existence. They are their own worst enemies in the book of Judges. But meanwhile, God is busy saving them from themselves, working quietly, often unseen and unnoticed in the lives of this one particular family. So what we're doing in in Ruth is we're zooming in from wide-angle look at what's going on in Israel in this horrible time to what God is doing in this life, the lives of this one obscure family. In the midst of that ugliness and chaos and darkness, God is busy saving Israel from themselves in the life of one family from Bethlehem who had had their own world fall apart. The story of Ruth opens with the perspective of Naomi. We follow the early action through her. Naomi was the wife of a man from Bethlehem. She had two sons. But Bethlehem, their family's historical home, was living through a famine. A famine that made it impossible for them to make ends meet there. A famine in an agricultural place like Bethlehem is is devastating. So they were forced to leave their home. People didn't do that back then. You didn't move from where you were from. That's part of who you were. Where you were from is part of who you were. It's not like today where you, people move all the time. When you were from somewhere, you stayed there. But not for this family. Not anymore. They had to move. What made it worse is that they moved to Moab, which was a nearby country that, or, 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 or tribe, tribal area that was full of their enemies. They hate Moab. They had a lot of reasons to, based on the history of these, these peoples going back and forth with one another. So not only are they leaving their home, they're, they're stuck in this place that's, that, that they, they can't stand, full of people that they can't stand. You can almost imagine Naomi trying to, to talk truth to herself, checking her thoughts, not letting her thoughts run wild, telling herself, okay, we're away from everything we've known. This is not where we would choose to live, but, but at least we've got our family, our family. We still have our family. At least we came here together. And then her husband dies. Her rock, her provider, the father of her children, her protection in the world, gone. You can hear her talking herself up again. At least I've still got my two sons. My two sons and my two sons, they're both married, so I can hope, even expect, that soon they'll have children and we're, we're still here. We're still family. We've we still got hope. Ten years later, her sons still have no children. And both of her sons die. You can see why Naomi prayed the way that she did at the end of chapter 1. 
She even said that her name should be changed. Do not call me Naomi, she says in chapter 1, verse 20. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. What is God doing? Already the story's begun to turn for Naomi and, and what Shaka covered for us last week in chapter 2 of Ruth. They, the, the famine lifts. Naomi returns. Ruth, one of her two daughter-in-laws, is unwilling to stay with her own people in Moab. She is with Naomi to the end. She completely gives herself over to Naomi and Naomi's family and Naomi's place and Naomi's God. It's a beautiful story. When they get back to Bethlehem, they, uh, uh, Ruth goes out into the fields and finds food. It looks like Maybe there's going to be enough for their family to eat and survive at least for a little while. And while she's there, she actually meets a man, Boaz, who's, who's, who's kind to her and generous and, and, and seems to take a special interest in their family. And this generosity has put an idea in Naomi's head. And from here on, from the beginning of chapter 3 to the end of the book, the story becomes a story of a relationship. A relationship between Ruth and and Boaz. Now, I want to begin by showing you the shocking plan that Naomi and Ruth come up with. That's where we're going to start. Then the story shifts to Boaz's surprising response to their shocking plan. We'll follow the action, shift from the women to this man. Watch what he does. And then we want to finish this morning by helping you see the silent hand that was behind it all along, because this book is here to help us see Jesus. We're going to finish by trying to make that clear for you. I want to begin with a shocking plan, and I'm going to read the first few verses of of chapter 3. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that? I'm going to start with verse 1 of chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? In other words... Naomi is saying she wants to find a family for Ruth. She wants her to have a husband and children. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Now here's her plan. See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put your cloak on, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. This is God's word. You can be seated. Naomi wants Ruth to have a life of rest, not struggle. She wants her to be married. And that's what's behind this shocking plan that she comes up with and that Ruth carries out. She tells her to wash up. She tells her to put on perfume, make sure you're attractive and that you smell good. Tells her to to put on her cloak. This is partly what it seems like on the surface. She wants Ruth to be attractive. There's also something else behind it. She wants it to be clear that Ruth is not mourning anymore for the loss of her husband. She's back on the market, so to speak. Make it clear that you're available. Wait till he's finished with his work, finished with his eating and his drinking. Wait till he's settled down to sleep. Then lay down next to him, uncover his feet, and 
do whatever he tells you to do next. What in the world? What kind of passive-aggressive plan is this? More significantly, I think, is Naomi telling Ruth to seduce him? Some have read it that way. It's definitely not uncommon, commentators point out, for prostitutes to do their work in settings like this, where it's harvest time and and the men are out doing the work of harvest, and it's a common thing. It's also pretty common during this time in Israel's history. But these words, this uncovering of his feet, there's nothing euphemistic here. None of these words mean something else in the original language that doesn't come through in ours. Nothing points to sexual activity. And even more importantly, this sort of seduction would be totally out of place for this story and these characters. Not out of place for the time, maybe. I mean, it was an ugly time where God's law was, was not valued, much less obeyed. But this story is about characters that aren't like everybody else, that are kind and generous and upright. Everything points to a high moral character for them. It would have fit the time, in other words, for this to be a story of seduction, but not these people. The plan was not risque, in other words, but it was risky. Did you see what I did there? (laughs) Not risque, but it was risky. It was risky because in this time, in this climate, going out like this at night, she could have easily been assaulted. Earlier in the story, Boaz has to tell his men not to touch her while she's working in the fields. And if you were with us for, this, for the sermon on Judges chapter 19, you know how women were being abused during this time. They were objects, not people, to so many who, who had the power to do what they wanted. So she was risking herself by going out at night. She was risking her reputation and Boaz's because even though there's nothing in the story that suggests she was trying to seduce him, it certainly looks that way. Going at night as she did, lying down next to him as she did, that's how it could have been taken. She's literally placing her body, even her own life and her future in the hands of a man she doesn't really know that well. This is a risky plan. Most of all, it's risky because she had no idea how he'd respond to this preposterous marriage proposal because that's what this is, friends. That's what she's proposing. She's proposing marriage. Pick up with me in verse 6 of chapter 3. This is where Ruth is executing Naomi's plan. She went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. (laughs) Yeah, that would startle you, yeah. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is a marriage proposal. In Israel's law and custom, this redeemer language that Ruth just used, that refers to something they had written into their law codes that reflects something beautiful about how God had redeemed them. Everything in Israel's laws was based on what God had done to save them from their bondage to Egypt. He saves them, then gives them a law as the people who have been saved, redeemed by this God. 
And in that law, lots of echoes of what he had done for them in saving them out of Egypt, including this law of redemption. The, the way these customs worked were that if someone had died without having an heir, without someone to carry on the family's name and to possess the family's portion of land in the, the land that God had given them, then someone else near to them in the family would marry the widow and help extend the line into the future, would redeem the brokenness of that situation. Ruth is appealing to this law and this custom. She's asking Boaz to be a redeemer in her life. It's probably what's also behind this spread your wings over your servant. It's, a unfam- it's, it's not, a, not a terribly familiar common phrase, but uh, pretty clear that that's what it means. She's asking him to, to bring her in, to shelter her, to protect her and provide for her. There's similar language used for God's promise to to, to spread his wings over his people and to, to bring them in, even to marry his people, to redeem their brokenness. She wants shelter. She wants to be, uh, to, to, to be close, warm, and safe. That's what she's asking him to give her. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And that, that proposal of marriage is shocking. She may not be offering her body for sex, but she is offering her life in marriage, and she is doing it across huge lines that did not get crossed in that time. She's a woman proposing to a man. She's a foreigner, a Moabite, proposing to an Israelite. She has nothing, and she's proposing to a man of means she's young and he's old she's crossing class and gender and race it's shocking and it raises a crucial question what will Boaz do Naomi had told Ruth just just trust me go and cover his feet lay down next to him then do whatever he tells you to do next. So we as readers are supposed to be asking, what's he going to tell her to do next? And it's not hard to imagine the options. And this time and place, he could easily have taken advantage of her beauty and her vulnerability and the opportunity of darkness and isolation. He could have taken her. More easy to imagine, given what we've seen about Boaz so far in the story, is that he could have been outraged at this act. He could have taken what she's doing here as a a proposition to him. And he could, as a man of, of upright character, as a man who followed the law, it could have been scandalous at worst and, and just impolite at best for her to cross these lines. There's a lot of ways this could go wrong. In fact, it's expected, I think that this, would, this should not work. But here the action shifts to Boaz's response. From here to the end of the story, we're following him. And look at how he responds. Look at verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know 
that you are a worthy woman. Far from rejecting her or shaming her, he has affirmed her and celebrated her. You get the sense from that response that this is what Boaz wanted all along. That his attentions to her, his looking out for her in chapter 2, was more than the gracious kindness of a good and godly man, though it was surely that. It was also the doting of a, of a man smitten by this young woman who couldn't convince himself that she'd actually be interested in him. Boaz's response from here is to take care of everything. The rest of chapter 3 is him making plans. He's going to get this thing done, but it's not going to be easy because there's a couple of problems. One is there's somebody else that's closer to her in the line that would, be the fir- would have the first option to redeem her and her family and based on Israel's law and custom. He's got to get that squared away because he's an upright man. He's going to follow the law. He's going to stick within the custom. So he's got to get that done. But in the meantime, I'm summarizing a lot here for the sake of time, he, he takes care of her. He makes sure that she stays there through the rest of the night so that, so that she's not vulnerable on her way back home in the middle of the darkness. And so she makes, he makes sure that she leaves before anyone wakes up so that nobody gets the wrong idea about what's happened here. And then he sends her away with a bunch of grain, a whole bunch of grain as a first step in his desire to provide for her and her family. Boaz is taking care of everything. Chapter 4, though, is where, the, is where the, the action really picks up again because it's here that he's got to handle this legal matter. He's got to make sure that he gets Ruth on the up and up and not through any sort of underhanded dealings. So he goes to the gate of the city. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He goes to the gate of the city. This is where ancient business would get done. And he sits down. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, he came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and he says, sit down here. So they sat down. He's getting the decision makers around him so that what happens here will be seen by all. There will be witnesses. It will be official. Everything on the up and up. And And then he lays out the situation. Beginning in verse 3. He says to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I'd tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So at this point, you can imagine if Ruth were there. We don't know where she was at this point, but she's waiting, right? She's now, it, the, the ball is in Boaz's court. She's done all she can. You can almost imagine her hearing him lay the situation out, and she's like, what? You're kind of burying the lead, aren't you? What's all this talk of land? What about me? Pull on his heartstrings for crying out loud. Tell him we're in love. Do something. And then the unthinkable happens. This unnamed unimportant possible redeemer says to Boaz simply I will redeem it and if this story had a soundtrack this is the part where the strings play that Alfred Hitchcock psycho scene all the alarm bells are going off you're thinking no just at the moment that this couple we've been rooting for can finally get together this guy's going to swoop in here and take her away It's like that moment where Jim starts dating Karen just as Pam becomes available. You're thinking, don't do it, Jim. Don't do it. It's not right. You belong with Pam. 
Boaz knows exactly what he's doing, though. He's smart. He starts with the land, saving back the part about Ruth. Maybe he knows something about this man. Now he brings it in, and the man balks. Look what he says. The man's just said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. Notice him emphasizing that she's foreign. The widow of the dead. In order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Buy the field and your life becomes about this dead man's life. Extending something for him. Oh, that changes things. This would-be redeemer is a number cruncher. He's not a romantic. You can see him populating this mental spreadsheet. He can't make the numbers come out in the black. He's like, um, uh, he's hemming, he's hawing. Oh, okay, well, uh, I can't redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. He's thinking, okay, I'd have to have Ruth, and she comes with her mother-in-law, and if we had any children, then they would actually get this land I'm about to buy. It would belong to them, and they would own this other guy's name, and that might hurt my own... I can't do it. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it, period. And if this story had a soundtrack, this is where the strings come in in a major key, and the brass comes in behind them, and maybe some big choir singing Italian words. They've done it. They've done it. Everything has fallen perfectly into line. The match that we're all rooting for is made. Once and for all. Ruth's plan was shocking. But Boaz's response rose to match it in stride. It's a beautiful story with a happy ending. But now we need to make it clear. Friends, come back with me here. If you've drifted at all, this is the time to check back in. Now we need to make it clear what this ending actually is, where the story actually ends. Because it's not their wedding day, but their wedding night that matters. And what happens nine months later? Now we see what the silent hand of God has been doing all along. Look at verse 13 with me. Jump down past this really interesting custom I don't have time to describe to you that involves drawing off of sandals. Read it on your own time. Come with me down to verse 13. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Here in verse 13, we see the Lord's hand for the first time. Throughout the story, his name has been mentioned. Naomi has wondered what he's doing. Boaz has prayed to him. He's been invoked, but we haven't seen him acting. The story isn't marked by miraculous deliverance like some of the other judges' stories were. But here we see his hand, steady, true, intentional. Here we know and see where he finally shows up in giving her conception, which she had not experienced for 10 years in her former marriage. We see what God has been up to all along. Everything has happened to to make this moment possible. Everything has been about this child. 
that, it doesn't end here. We get a beautiful, warm scene of Naomi and her pain and her sorrow and her emptying from earlier in chapter 1, now being filled up. From here we see her. We see Naomi being celebrated by the women who had heard her mourn when she returned home. These same women are now praising God who has not left you, verse 14 says, has not left you this day without a redeemer. Now they're talking about the child. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. It's beautiful. This woman who'd lost everything. Now we see her at the end of the story bouncing this cuddly little baby on her lap and we see that God knew what he was doing and, and, and it seems like a great and natural place to end the story, doesn't it? Some of the most consistent feedback I've gotten over my few years as a preacher is that I've got to learn when to stop, okay? You reach the climax and then just keep on going, right? We were with you way back then, like 10 minutes ago. That would have been a nice time for us all to go home and just, just keep churning. And that's the way you kind of feel about what, what happens here with Ruth. This will be a beautiful time to stop. Naomi, celebrated by the women who'd heard her weep, bouncing this baby boy on her lap, the nourisher of her old age. But that isn't where it ends. Look at verse 17. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David, talk about ending with a thud. It ends with a genealogy. Learn when to stop. But, but no, no, this genealogy has been the point all along. The whole story is about this genealogy. What is God doing That question was asked at chapter 1. He's turned my life into nothing but bitterness. What is the Almighty up to? And now we get our answer. What is God doing? God is giving Israel David, the greatest king in their history the one that finally led them toward God, that finally gave them peace and justice, at least for a time. But friends, even David is not the point. David is just, is just like one of those sketches that an artist will, will sketch out in pencil on paper as a first draft of the painting that they're about to produce. David is just a sketch, a base for the real picture, a picture that will be like this, only Better, only way better, more complete, more colorful, more true to life, zoomed out in the story that the whole Bible is telling. This story and David's story is a story about Jesus. And any reference to David is just shorthand for the one who would come from David's line. What's this story about? It's a story about God 
giving his people Jesus. Now we're ready to get clear on what that story means for us. I want to give you three things to end today. Here's what the story means for us. First, God won't let our sin stop him from saving sinners. Do you remember the context? The context is the period of the judges. It's full of darkness and chaos where Israel isn't just the victim of other people's oppression. They are the perpetrators. But here, zoomed in on what God is doing in the lives of this one obscure family, we see that when Israel was doing their very best to destroy all the goodness that God had given them, God is giving them the king that they so desperately need. Judges had called us back over and over. The problem here in Israel is that there's no king. Everybody's doing what's right in their eyes. And in the midst of it, the story helps us to see God is giving them exactly what they need. He is saving them despite themselves. And what you need to know, friend, if you're here as one who's considering Jesus but not a Christian, is that this religion is not like any other on the face of the earth. You do not obey in order to earn the favor of the God whose favor means life. You just get it in Jesus for free if you'll have it. God won't let your sin, no matter what you've done, keep you from the forgiveness and the life that he will give you in Jesus if you turn to him. Jesus said himself, I I came not to save the righteous, but sinners. And this story shows us that. Here's the second thing it shows us. God won't let the powerful stop him from bringing peace and justice. We've said that God won't let our sin stop him from saving sinners. This story also shows us he is not going to let the powerful stop him from establishing and bringing peace and justice. Look at who he's using. One of the things we've always noticed about judges is that he loves to take these people who are obscure or limited in some way, whom no one in the culture would have, would have recognized as, as the, the sort of people you'd build an army around. He would take them and deliver through them so that everyone sees it's really him and his power. His power is what matters, not others. He loves to show the powerful that no matter how powerful they think they are, he will do what he's going to do using whomever he wants to use. I don't know that we've seen, I don't think we've seen a story where that point comes through more clearly than this one. Just think of it, friends. Think of what we saw together two weeks ago in Judges chapter 19. Think of the horrifying sexual abuse that occurred in that story. The objectification of women turned into less than human into objects to be done with as the powerful pleased. That's what the powers that be were doing to women in this time. But while they were busily abusing women, treating them like objects and not like humans, God, God is taking two weak, vulnerable, ostracized women and using them to save the world. God won't let the powerful stop him from bringing peace and justice. He will do it on his terms. And finally, 
God's purposes aren't always obvious, but they always lead to Jesus. His purposes aren't always obvious, but they always lead to Jesus. Every awful turn, every painful setback in the story of this family, every step on this journey was part of the path to Obed. And Obed was the path to David. And David was the path to Jesus. Every step of this journey that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz have been on together, every step was a step towards Jesus. God can redeem your life too. And if you're one of God's children, you should see these twists and turns of the story of Ruth and know that your twists and turns lead you to the same person. They lead you to Jesus, to another child born in Bethlehem. This is a season where Christians all over the world are celebrating Advent. It's a time where we celebrate the coming of Jesus that's already happened, but also a time where we look ahead to the promise that he's going to come again and that all the things he said he would do for us, he'll actually do for us, where we can see them concretely in our own experience. For now, we live in between those comings, and Advent reminds us of that. We're waiting on his promises to be made real and concrete in our experience, not just in our longing. And Ruth's story reminds us to hold on, to take heart, because every twist and turn is bringing you to Jesus. If the Bible's stories are any indication of what you can expect from your life as a Christian, then your path won't be a straight one. We'll be full of setbacks and unexpected turns and obstacles that you'd rather avoid. I don't have to tell you guys that. You've lived it this year, haven't you? You've lived it this year. You've lost unborn children. You've suffered broken relationships that you hoped would last or watched relationships break down in your family. People close to you, people that you love have died this year. Some of you have fought hard battles against addiction. Others of you have suffered from the addictions of people that are close to you. Some of you are living with chronic pain that probably isn't going to go away. Some of you are living with financial stress or disappointment at work. And I could go on just from concrete examples that I know about what you're dealing with, much less all the things I don't know. What is God doing? Part of the answer to that, friends, is I don't don't know what he's doing. At, At one level, I don't know why your life takes the turns that it does. Why my life or the life of others of your friends take different turns than yours. At another level, Ruth shows us exactly what God is doing. Because every experience you've had, every obstacle you've faced, everything you've lost, has been getting you to Jesus. Whatever it was, if you're a Christian, it wasn't a wrong turn. It wasn't a dead end. It was a necessary part of your journey to glory. 
sometimes we have to break down before we can be picked up. Sometimes we have to collapse before we're willing to be carried. Sometimes we have to be emptied like Naomi was, emptied of pride and self-reliance before we'll ever be filled up. We have to die before we can live. God knows this. And He knows what we need better than we do. And sometimes that means painful setbacks. But it never means dead ends. Your road as a child of God is always leading to Jesus. Father, help us to believe that because there's plenty of reasons not to. Help us to see the reasons that you've given us for believing your promise more clearly than we see the arguments against believing your promise. In other words, we pray that you'd help us to see the record of your faithfulness to people like Ruth and to see the scale of what you've done for us in Jesus and to trust that everything else that doesn't seem to fit with the God who loves us makes sense from the same purpose that brought Jesus to the cross. You are doing what you have to to get us to glory. Help us to rest in that truth and to help each other to believe that truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.